Hi, and this is Johnny Ryan from the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. You're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today we have episode 310 for February 6th, 2023. First and foremost, the book is finally out. By the time you hear this, it should be available everywhere. Knock on wood. Uh, it is available from my publisher directly. Uh, Amazon, as of the time I'm taping this, which is on Saturday, it still says pre-order, but uh, by the time you hear this, it should be officially available. If you've already pre-ordered the book, they should start shipping immediately. Now, I'm in the process of updating several things that are tied to the book. For example, uh, with my newsletter, when you sign up, you get a free first chapter of the book as part of signing up. There's also a top five tips document that I give out uh, when you sign up for my newsletter. I want to get that updated as well. It's probably mostly the same, but I, I know I want to change some of that. So I'm in the process of changing some of that stuff. So if you were thinking about signing up for the newsletter to get any of that stuff, you might want to hold off a little bit. I'll make it obvious somehow on the sign up page that I've made these updates. But here's the big thing. So I could really, really use your help to try to get this book noticed, which is really hard to do these days. There are so many great books out there, tons of great content to consume. So it's really kind of hard to pop up on people's radars. So at the end of this article, uh, I have a long list, actually, of very specific things, things you might not really think about that could really help me get this book noticed. Honestly, I, I, I don't make a lot of money off this book. I'm not going to get rich with this, but I am trying to reach as many people as I possibly can. And as I've often said, we're all in this together. And so the more people that can implement some basic privacy and security protections, the better off we will all be. Because this is not just a me thing. This is a we thing. Your privacy and your security overlaps mine. There is a notion of kind of a herd immunity in the virtual world, just like there is in the biological world. So to find the article, you'll just go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. It'll be probably at this point, the top article there, or you can go to fdsd.me slash fifth. That's five TH. So another quick tidbit, I got my huge settlement check from the Equifax data breach. This will really show them that they can't get away with treating our data like this and not securing it. My check was for a whopping total of $5.21. It probably cost them more than five bucks just to process that check. That's just, that's just crazy. Anyway, okay, so today we have an interview, a great interview. Uh, today I'll be talking with Johnny Ryan. He is from the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, and he has been on the show before. It was a great talk before. And today we're going to start by talking about some hefty fines that were levied against Meta, the parent company of Facebook, uh, in the European Union. And there's some really interesting backstory to that whole thing. But then we'll talk a little bit more generally about the state of surveillance capitalism, both in the EU and in the US. But Johnny's a great person to talk to about these things. He and his team are really on the front line of the privacy war. They're doing some great work, which has and will in the future benefit all of us, even those of us outside the EU. So it's always great to have Johnny on the show. Uh, glad to have him back. Uh, a couple things that I'll mention before we get into it. He talks about Julia Angwin. Uh, she wrote a great book called Dragnet Nation. Uh, it's a, if you haven't read it, it's a great one to pick up. He also talks about the IAB, the Interactive Advertising Bureau, I believe is what that stands for. And that was something we discussed at length in our previous interview, uh, which was episode 231. There's a link in the show notes to that if you want to go back and check that one out. And that's where we talked a lot about RTB or real-time bidding which is this down to the millisecond auctioning process that happens every time you're in a position to be shown an ad. And that's not only on the web, that's likely to be in apps that you're using as well, particularly free ones that are ad-based. And more to the point, the vast, vast amounts of information about you, very personal information about you, which is sent around to potentially thousands of advertisers who might want to show you an ad all in the, all in the span of milliseconds and what that information says about you. But today, again, we're going to talk about this latest find of meta, both on Facebook and Instagram, what that means for the rest of us, what that may affect in the future, and then more generally, kind of how we are doing in the whole battle for privacy and the fight against surveillance capitalism. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get to our interview with Johnny Ryan. 
Johnny Ryan works at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, and he was previously Chief Policy Officer at Brave. He has testified and spoken at the U.S. Senate, the European Commission, and the European Parliament. It's great to have you back on the show, Johnny. Thanks, Gary. Good to be back. So uh, before we get into the details of this recent meta case, can you give us just, a, again, like a brief refresher on how big tech companies harvest and use our data? We talk about it a lot, but for the purposes of, of today's discussion, let's lay a little groundwork. Uh, you know, what is behavioral advertising and how, how do companies like meta gather this information that drives these targeted ads? If you think of a big tech firm like a big machine, it will gather up your data to do something you've asked it to do maybe to drive you from A to B or to show you that route on a map. But now the data about where you've been and where you're going in that example is inside that company. And that machine will use those data for other things that you do not necessarily care. They may or may not uh, benefit you, but they will benefit the company's bottom line. Let me give an example. Let's imagine We've got a fictitious firm called Johnny Incorporated. And Johnny Incorporated has a great mapping system. And I use that mapping system to get me to my various medical appointments. Maybe I am suffering cancer, for example, some form of advanced cancer. Okay, Johnny Incorporated has really helped me by cutting through traffic and shortening my A to B. But what if Johnny Incorporated happens to also own a medical insurance firm in this hypothetical example? Or what if one of its lines of revenue is to sell data about my health to a medical insurance firm or to target me with ads for other firms and so on? Uh, I didn't anticipate that happening when I got into my car and drove <laughs> off to my medical appointment this morning. But inside these big, big firms, one of the things that makes them so dynamic and impressive is also what makes much of what they're doing so lawfully difficult or legally difficult. They have internally a free-for-all of data, a total absence in many cases, it seems, of any limit on what they do with data. And imagine now you're running a small mom-and-pop company <laughs> and you're trying to compete with one of these mm. businesses. They can take data that they got from some other bit of their business and drop it in into this new market that you happen to have been in, and they drop that in and you have no way of competing. Mm. And that's not necessarily in the interest of the, of the person consuming the product or the service in this, in this example. Um, and it means that not only does winner take all, but winner keeps taking everything else too. Well, and of course, the other tricky thing, and this is something we've dealt with a lot over the years, is that, that it may be the, the original mom and pop shop that is doing this, and they're doing it for their own benefit. And then they get bought out by the big tech company, and then that gets reused somewhere else. The, the original purpose for that data has been changed due to mergers and acquisitions or, or, or even just growth. I mean, even Google back in the day didn't, mm. didn't use the data like they use it today until someone yeah. you know, got the bright idea, hey, we can, we can be monetizing this data. So it's not even... It could be changing behind the scenes without even knowing, which is even scarier, right? So the Irish Data Protection Council, or DPC, uh, recently levied a really hefty fine on Facebook parent company Meta over its advertising practices. So what rules did Meta violate that led to these fines? And uh, like in the U.S., whenever this stuff happens, it, it makes big headlines and then they appeal and then it eventually gets knocked down to lower values or it gets thrown out or whatever. So is there still an appeals process yet to happen where this might not actually go through? What? Tell me about how that works. Well, there's quite a few things to say here. First, that fine was forced on the Irish Data Protection Commission by its counterpart European authorities at what is called the European Data Protection Board. Peculiarly, the Irish Data Protection Commission had been in complete agreement with Meta that Meta could have a magical contract with you. <laughs> well, the law would say that if Meta wants to do certain things with your data, it's going to have to check with you. Well, actually, the DPC, that's the Irish Data Protection Commission, decided that Meta was right. It did not have to ask you. Instead, it could have a kind of a catch-all, another free-for-all contract. So you want to uh, 
you want to buy this service or avail of this service? Well, we're allowed to do all of this other stuff too, which has very little to do with the service itself. Now, there was a there was a vote among the European authorities, and it turns out that the Irish authority was completely isolated, hmm. not a single other authority all across the EU. So you're thinking around about 30 different authorities sitting around a table and no one agreeing with the Irish Data Protection Commission. Now, the Irish Data Protection Commission had then put forward an idea of a fine and its European colleague said, no, you're going to multiply that by about 10 times. And that's the fine. And the DPC was forced to issue that fine. So uh, the first thing is that there's an interesting maturity here. Um, we've had this landmark data protection law on the books for six years and applicable to companies for four years. And we're now at the point where we're getting really big decisions that affect really big companies' businesses and the the weight of opinion among enforcers is stopping any obstruction or daft ideas that individual enforcers might have had in the past that we're now seeing European enforcement start to come into its own. Until now, the GDPR, this European data law, has for many people been a nuisance just to be because the way it's been applied, not right. necessarily because of the law, right? but we're now seeing the application of the law enter a new phase of maturity. And the DPC being forced to change three decisions in one day on Instagram, WhatsApp, and Meta in major ways um, is a part of that new maturity. Now, the DPC reacted. I know you asked about Meta, and I'm answering about this Irish <laughs> authority, but just to give you a sense of how perverse the situation here is, the DBC reacted to being told, you also have ignored the complaints against Meta, looking at how Meta uses our most sensitive data, data about our sex lives and our faith and our politics. You've you pretty much refused to investigate that aspect of this investigation. You've left it out. You have to investigate that is part of the overriding decision uh, that was voted on. And the Irish authority, the DPC, reacted in a very surprising way. Instead of saying, okay, we're going to raid Meta tomorrow, they said, no, we're going to take all of you other European authorities and we're going to sue you at Europe's highest court. So that's what happened in the <laughs> oh last few goodness. weeks. Wow. Right, so this is a very strange situation where Ireland's authority is the lead enforcer for Apple, Microsoft, Google, Meta, TikTok, many, many, many others in all of the European economic area. You've got around about half a billion people living there, and they are relying on this one regulator who is less than a kilometer away from me as I speak. And <laughs> that regulator is taking all of the others to court. And essentially, it's asking the court to tell it to not do its job. Huh. Now, you asked about Meta and what this means for Meta. The first answer really is, this has a meaning for all big tech firms. European enforcers, not just the Irish one, are asserting the law over the objection of the Irish one. So that is very, very significant to the bottom line, I think, of an awful lot of firms who until now have got something like a, almost like a pass. The law has not really been applied yeah. in any robust way. The second consequence, of course, relates to Meta. What does this really mean? What it means, at least in Europe, is Facebook, for example, part of Meta, uh, but this applies to the rest of Meta too. Mm -hmm. Facebook will have to continue to provide you with the service that you ask it to provide, which is the news feed and the ability to upload photos and things like that. But it will not automatically be able to use 
all of that data to target ads at you in particular. Now, I'm not sure how damaging that is actually to Meta's bottom line. If you had a situation where everyone, as, as they should in, in Europe under law, where everyone, every company has to get agreement from people for that secondary use of their data for advertising. Mm -hmm. Well, if that applied to everyone, which it should and does in theory, Facebook would be in a really good position because even without using highly sensitive data about you for advertising, it's still in a great position to show you ads. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this with some newspapers that abandoned that form of advertising. And actually they found the effect on the bottom line was not a, was not a negative one. Mm -hmm. So often in the economic, <laughs> I don't know what word to use, but let's use the word economics and let's pretend as economists do that their discipline is a science. <laughs> it's not a science. Yeah. Even science is not quite a science. <laughs> but let's imagine economics were a science. In the economics uh, studies so far of how that kind of data, so-called behavioral data about mm -hmm. what you do online and, and offline, how that affects revenue. Normally what they do is they, they take a look at a ad auction, a slightly different system. This is one part of Facebook's business. And they compare the revenue you can generate from showing an ad to a random human being where you know nothing about them mm -hmm. at all mm. to the revenue you can, you, you can get when you know an awful lot about that human being. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, the second one's bigger than the first. <laughs> and that's roughly the, the, the state of, um, of economic analysis. Now, if you've any economist listeners, they may object to that, but I'd be happy to take them up on the detail. <laughs> and I have not seen any study that really compares the use of safe data, mm. the use of safe data about wh what someone appears to be interested in, even without knowing anything about them. So this particular case, uh, it was about, a, I think it was about almost a 400 million euro fine against Meta, which broke down over Facebook and Instagram, I think is the, I think it was the two parts to that. But I think what had basically happened is there's this notice and consent model, which we all are familiar with now in the form of cookie pop-ups that a lot of people, if any, if the, anybody in the US or outside the EU knows anything about GDPR, they associate it, I think, with these cookie pop-ups. Oh, that's where those things come from, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the idea being that we're supposed to ask, that these companies are supposed to ask if they can use your data. So now we get all these pop-ups in, in the form of these cookie things. But what Meta did was they kind of rolled instead of doing that, my understanding is they rolled that consent into the licensing agreement for using the product. It was all part of that thing that we all click. Yes, I agree to that. We never read and it's got mm -hmm. buried in there. And, and I think that was what they objected to. Is that correct? Am I understanding that right? Worse than that. They, they buried it in the terms and conditions. And I haven't read the decision actually in quite a few weeks, but I don't think there's a yes, I agree aspect. I think you just continue to use the service yeah. and that's your agreement. <laughs> Now I could be wrong in that on that detail. Well, they've done a software company's been trying to get away with that stuff for years with license, you know, end user licensing agreements. I mean, to the point yeah. where I remember some software packages when you used to buy on CDs, and you'd buy the shrink wrap package, and on the shrink wrap package was a label that says, "By opening this box, you agree to you know, to to using yeah. the software, and therefore all the terms and conditions which you haven't read yet because they're on the CD-ROM, which isn't you know." Yeah. So they've been doing yeah. this for years. So it, it sounds to me like that's basically what they're doing. Now I I really want to get beautiful to image, yeah. beautiful yes. image. <laughs> Um, so why did the Irish data protection council not agree with, I'm surprised that there was this disconnect. Did they, they think that was, it was okay that meta did it this way? Like, or was it just legal that they did it this I, way? And so we need to change the law. I cannot explain what their reasoning was. They didn't do a very good job at explaining it themselves, mm. but I can tell you that other authorities were objecting very loudly um, a long time ago. And some of them said, if we were to take your view of this, anything could be buried in terms and conditions. And there would be no possibility to protect people against all sorts of things. Right. So it was clearly a nonsense. 
And let me pick you up on this 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 thing about cookie pop-ups and so mm-hmm. on. You're right. And it is very unfortunate and unfair and yet accurate that people look at the GDPR as the thing that created these cookie pop-ups. Let me correct that. What created those cookie pop-ups was the tracking industry, which is trying to undermine the GDPR. Right. And malicious compliance. Yes, that's a I've never heard that phrase. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And conspicuously terrible. And, you know, the user experience is awful and no one in their right mind could look at those things as positives. Now, in the Facebook case and Instagram case, they are being told you need to ask people a direct question about what it is you intend to do. Uh, Now, you can imagine what that would look like. We want to use your, I don't know, your health, like, you know, whether you're overweight or underweight chronically to target you with ads. You know, we want to know if you're emotionally vulnerable and so on. Now, remember, this is the same company that has been exposed again and again by Julia Angwin, mm-hmm. then at ProPublica, now at the markup, for allowing people to target ads to Jew haters, mm. for allowing ads that that discriminate by age and race against prospective buyers of homes or applicants to jobs. So Meta has a very, very dubious, it isn't dubious, <laughs> there's nothing to do more doubt. It, right. it has an obvious and evident track record yeah. of misuse of these data. So back to the cookie pop-up point. Funnily enough, there's a European and American story here, and there's a deep moral. This European law, the GDPR, is based on American ideas from the 1970s. Very, very clever, sensible American ideas. I think you're referring to the FIP, the Fair Information Practices? Those those FIPI FIPs, yes. And uh, they came about because you had magnetic tape, social security records, health data, credit scores, and suddenly they were coming together and they would never go away and you could get them cheaply and, and easily. So the GDPR takes these long established American ideas and attaches some teeth to them and addresses them not only at the public sector, but at the private sector as well. Now, the industry responds with spam. Yeah. Nonsense consent pop-ups that mean nothing, that, that, that cover an underlying data breach where thousands of companies are throwing data about you and what you're doing online and where you are in the real world among each other. This is what we spoke about last time. And they cover that with this thin and false veneer of purported legality. Uh, Supposedly, you gave consent to something that is illegal. Well, actually, in February um, last year, we won a decision by all European authorities across the Union against that system. And we are defending against the industry's appeal at Europe's highest court right now. So what has happened is these American ideas, the FIPS, end up in the GDPR, and they were in European law previously as well. The industry tries to pervert them with malicious compliance, as you said, with with this consent spam. European law asserts itself over the industry, and we're still making sure that applies at the European Court of Justice. But here is the plot twist. The same system, which is now being shown to be illegal in Europe, is now being applied in the United States by that industry. The IAB, that's the industry, the tracking industry's body, Mm -hmm. the IAB is introducing supposedly European style, but it's tracking industry style, spam, consent pop-up spam. It's introduced it now in several US states. And luckily for us, at long last, it took too long, but luckily we have law that says, no, you can't do that. That's illegal in Europe. But we may end up with a situation actually where 
Americans who rightly laughed at Europeans for this spam, which was caused, though, by the industry, not by the law, right. may find themselves afflicted by that thing caused by the industry, not by the law. Right. The party to blame here is the industry. Yeah. Well, and I used to be a part of it, so I understand <laughs> how it happened. Yeah, it, it, yeah, I forget where I heard the term malicious compliance, but it, it applies perfectly. And it and and they responded with dark patterns. That's essentially is what they did. They either they yeah. they spammed you with it, like they hit you with so so many of these things that you that it drove you crazy, and you decided yes, fine, fine, accept or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or then they did things like you know accept all cookies here, or open this other dialogue to change your settings. Who wants to do that? Especially no, on every single web page, and they know that we don't want to do that. Listen, it gets worse because even if you say no. <laughs> The, the most commonly used system simply sends a request to the companies. Mm. Please don't accept when your business partner sends you uh, carries data. Please don't use that data. Right. My favorite, though, has got to be with a list of checkboxes of all the cookies I want to accept. And somewhere there's a bottom is a box that's checked that I can't uncheck that says necessary cookies. That, that, right. well, that, one, that one always kills me. But the point is, even even if you say no, it probably does not matter. Because it simply sends a plea on your behalf, right? Which they may or may not take seriously. All right. So the GDPR, what famously allows for finding a company up to four percent of global revenues. That's the maximum fine that could be levied, which is pretty mm-hmm. significant. And if, and in fact, for Meta, that would have been, uh, from one calculation I saw, like four point six billion euros. And yet the fine was actually just under four hundred million euros, ten percent of what it could have been. So how are how are the values of these fines determined? Uh, and will well, it was this- going to be. It was going to be one percent of what it could have been right. if DPC had had its way. Yes, it sounds like a lot—three hundred million euros. But it, and you know, for a company like Meta, that's it's a drop in the bucket. So, is that enough to change yeah. their practices? No, no. But so there are two issues there. The first is how are the fines determined, and the answer is the guidelines for how you determine fines, unfortunately, allow a reluctant regulator to dilute the whole thing. The good news is that fines are largely immaterial. Who cares about the fines? You'll remember maybe a few years back, the the US Federal Trade Commission fined Facebook, as it was then known, a very, very large figure in the billions. And the next day, their share price went up. (laughs) Right, so... Parking tickets, even if they're expensive, mm. do not stop your commute. And if you're making money by driving in this illegal way, yeah. it doesn't matter. Especially if you're making more money than the penalty. The penalties are supposed to dissuade bad behavior. But what really matters is that the the enforcers can tell a company not just to pony up some cash, but they can tell a company, stop right now. Hmm. Stop what you're doing with those data right there. We're looking at you. We see you put the gun down. <laughs> and, right. and I know that sounds a little bit direct, right? Because it sounds, you know, normally we're talking about an abstract thing, how companies use data and so on. It's difficult to remember, and yet it's the case, that the data protection authorities of Europe have the power in law to raid companies. Hmm. They can go get a warrant, for example, depending on your country, and, you know, if necessary, kick down a door. (laughs) And if someone's standing beside a server, say, hey, mate, what's in that box? What does it do? And if the person lies to them in Ireland, the officer of of the enforcer can put that person in prison. Hmm. That's in the Irish Data Protection Act. Now, (laughs) we have sought from the enforcer a statistic. How many times have you used your power to raid a big tech That question was on my list. They refuse to answer. They don't even acknowledge the letter requesting the statistic. Uh. It may be zero. It may, or it may be something very close to zero. But if you had an appetite for action, the GDPR says you can go into, it doesn't matter what size the company is, you can go in there and you can demand answers. 
Well, okay. So the way I read this is that they were given three months to comply, and that was already a few weeks ago. So will this be enforced? I mean, what changes are we going to see? I mean, it sounds to me like they're basically this this ruling aside from the fine, as you said, basically invalidated their business model. Like you can't do this, you know, meta, you've got to change your ways here. You have three months to come into compliance. Uh, will this be under appeal? Will that, will that deadline be extended? What happens if they don't comply in three months? <laughs> what changes are we actually going to see as a result of this? Well, funnily enough, uh, meta has said, yes, it will appeal. And so has the Irish data protection commission. <laughs> <laughs> So we end up with this bizarre, grotesque, unprecedented uh, situation. And we had a famous, uh, in in our part of the world, Irish prime minister, who was very charismatic, very brilliant, and profoundly corrupt uh, a few decades ago. And he he came up with this beautiful acronym, GUBU, grotesque, unprecedented, bizarre, and I can't remember what the last U was. (laughs) This is the situation we're in. The Irish enforcer is going to find itself on the same side as Meta, suing on appeal all of Europe's enforcers. Oh my God, that's so bizarre. Something that is evidently in the interests of everyone alive. The, 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 The particular issue that the Irish enforcer is going to appeal on is... We've been told we have to investigate what these co- what this company does with special category data. So that's your health, your politics, your sexuality, your philosophy, your faith, all that stuff. Uh, and we don't think we should be told to do that. Meta's going to say, well, there were procedural errors or, you know, mm-hmm. they'll try and find some grounds for, for appeal and they'll fight it as hard as they can. So, uh, yes, it will definitely be appealed. Meta has already changed some of the paperwork to reflect the outcome of the case. Its privacy policy now has some semblance of a table that shows different things they they do with data and why. It's still not very good. But, yeah, this is going to roll on, and we'll see if it sticks. There's a second category of problem, which is, um, aside from the reluctance of the enforcer, did the enforcer do a good job? Mm. Are there procedural errors that the mm. company can pull apart? I'm not going to comment on it one way or the other, but the, you know that's how this kind of thing could fall over. So I'm guessing the Meta is not the only company that uses licensing agreements now to get consent for tracking behavior. I, I'm sure that others have probably followed, tried to follow suit because, hey, that's a great idea. Why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, so will this ruling compel other companies to make similar changes or, or does does that require a whole separate, separate inquiry and enforcement procedure? The beauty is that once this has gone to the Court of Justice in Luxembourg, that's the equivalent of the U.S. Supreme Court, you simply point to that mm-hmm. okay. decision and whatever the the issues that Meta has raised, they're no longer issues. They're evidently case law. So that's very helpful. And the the EDPB, all European authorities voting in one way over a particular text, that gives that text a lot of weight as well. So when you're complaining against another company doing the same thing, you simply point to, this is a very clear thing. In fact, the only people who don't get it <laughs> is the Irish enforcer. So that kind of gives you a sense of, 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 of where it is. So yes, it's very significant. But more significant for the other companies is the pattern of behavior here, where you can no longer get by just because the Irish enforcer happens to believe with you, to be under the same illusion that you're claiming to be under. So was this focused strictly on notice and consent or was there, is there, can we hope for a broader issue here? Like you can't just sneak these kind of things into consent agreements or in end user license agreements, or is this narrowly focused on this one issue? Like, like there are all sorts of other things we agree to in these things that no one ever reads. So does this also give leverage to some of those other things being unwound? Yes. There's a thing called a processing purpose. You could think of it as the unit of account for how data are used inside an organization. We, you know, Claude Shannon gave us the bit and the byte, and that's the unit of account of information. 
But inside a business, we're not just concerned with quantity of data when we're trying to understand how businesses work. We're also interested in the use of the information. And a dynamic company like Amazon, for example, could be doing tens of thousands of different things with data. Each of those processing purposes needs to have some lawful basis if the data are about people and and they can be identified. Now, a lawful basis doesn't need to be consent. If If it's not data that reveals the person's health or sexuality and so on, you can use some other lawful basis. In some cases, you can even use contract. That's true. What Facebook was doing is, yes, it was using that that very intimate data, but also it it had this very unclear contract where you didn't really know what you were agreeing to. Mm. What it must now do is make really clear what its processing purposes are and what legal justification it has for them. So that's a bit of a revelation. And the funny thing about Meta is that it's, it's now apparent from recently unsealed court documents in Northern California in a big case against Meta that's been running for years. It's now apparent that Meta has no idea what it's doing with their data. <laughs> right. Doesn't have a clue. Yeah, I saw that too. That's That was scary. Met, this has got to have Meta shaking in its, in its boots, uh, or at least Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, Meta stock is down like 60% from its peak. And, and Mark Zuckerberg has explicitly said that the privacy restrictions, particularly those from Apple, are really hurting its business. Like I, I, they actually put a number on it, like it cost them $10 billion in one year or something mm-hmm. they were saying. So can Meta, these other data-driven businesses, adapt and survive in a privacy-respecting world? Is there – what I keep thinking about advertising. Like for all of human history until recent years, advertising has been contextual. Because we didn't have the behavioral data to do it. I mean, when you're driving down the road, you saw a billboard. So did everybody else driving down that road. When you're getting a newspaper, all they knew was, well, these are the kind of people that tend to buy our paper. And maybe they're in the sports section. So we could put an ad here because the people in this section are probably in this demographic. That was the best we could do. That's what we had for all of human history until the internet came around. Why can't we just go back to that? It seems to me that if we, if we could go back to where we just watch the ads, but the ads don't watch us back. There it's a level playing field and we're kind of back to what we used to be. Why can't we just well, why can't we just do that? I, I think we can, and it can be quite sophisticated. This isn't a dumbing of ads. But first, let's just make clear how dumb ads are now. We imagine that Facebook knows everything about us. But every six months, Facebook publishes, and this is to its credit a report on non-human traffic and mm. invalid human accounts and so on. And it, it details, tends not to make a big press statement that it has mm. done so, it details how many of these accounts it dumps every half year. And in the space of a year, last time I checked, and you could verify this independently, you know, I, I haven't checked this in a while, I think it dumped something like 6 billion accounts. Oh, my. 6 billion And for context, last time I checked, I think they only had 2.6 billion monthly active users. (laughs) Now, that's with this behavioral surveillance tracking, Mm. we know everything about you stuff. The online ad market is a mess. It is rife with fraud. Mm. It's rife with bots, which are present for the fraud. An awful lot of that bot traffic relies on the ability that the online ad tracking provides to follow a bot from the New York Times or from the LA Times or something, you know, expensive to a criminal property, a website or app, where they can bring the advertiser's dollar with them. And that's only possible because you can track the bot from an expensive place and and divert the funding from that expensive property to a a fraudulent criminal property. So (laughs) the the online ad business is a mess. Um, The advertiser is getting stiffed in a very big way. So big uh, is the stiffening that actually the estimates are always in the billions, but they range from single digit to triple, well, double approaching triple digit. And right now, the the advertiser trade body, the uh, the ANA Association of National Advertisers, 
is trying to conduct a study and has been, I think, for two years. I could be wrong with that. It might be one and a half years. Is trying to conduct a study of what happens to the advertiser's dollar. And the answer is they can't find out. Mm. They have no clue. There's no transparency. They have no way of knowing where the money's going. So do we like, if we are advertisers, what we have today? Are we sacrificing anything worth saving if we fix this privacy crisis? The answer is no. The current situation is an absolute mess. Now, there's other problems with Meta. Its reputation is rightly sitting in the middle of the urinal, swirling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, scandal after scandal is propelling it as it yeah. swirls faster. They've made courageous investments in something that, you know, uh, is not paying out. And that's their, their big play on the virtual world. Yeah. Um, so there are other reasons why their stock is down. People hate them. They made a bad punt, it seems. Maybe that'll turn out right in, in a decade, but who knows? So maybe that's one reason their stock's down and Apple's move is another. But if we fix advertising and make it no longer quite as dangerous as it is, I also suspect it'll become more productive for advertisers. Well, it's so ironic because the the the, the phrase that was always tossed around was advertisers used to complain that I, you know, fifty percent of the money I spend on advertising goes to the wrong places. The problem is I don't know which fifty percent. But and so that's why that the solution was writing in from Meta and Facebook and Google and you know, well, we can tell you now we've got all this targeted advertising. We can you know hyper target exactly the people you're talking about and fix this problem of yours. And what that led to because it was so lucrative a business as as you alluded to was click fraud. <laughs> and so now. We've got all these, you know, fake apps and bots and it, 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 clicking on ads that aren't real people and then are are tied to the affiliate links behind the scenes to get kickbacks every time they click on these things inappropriately. And and now we, we're back to the same situation where even though we have collected all this juicy data about people and we're using it for these targeted ads, they still don't know who's yeah. viewing these ads really. And they're paying a much heavier price for to, to run those ads. Jerry, you're absolutely right. When John Wanamaker, a famous marketer of long, long past, said that uh, 50% of his budget was working, the problem was he just didn't know which half. And what he was getting at was that marketing is an art. It's an art. And about 15, 20 years ago, marketers were convinced that their art could be made into a science. And that's a very attractive proposition. Now, you're an engineer, so you probably don't suffer this. But I studied humanities initially. And like everyone who studied humanities, I have a form of physics envy. <laughs> what that means is you're sitting there and you're, you're the CMO, the chief marketing officer, and some young person. Now, you're wearing a suit. This is back in the year 2000 when people used to wear suits. <laughs> Some young person walks in wearing Converse and a T-shirt, and they have a thing that they put up on the screen. It's called a chart. <laughs> and you think, oh, my God, it's a chart. <laughs> and the chart's got numbers on it. And the, the person wearing the Converse says to you that those numbers are something called data. Well, that's, that's hard to argue against. Mm. And yet, with the experience of two decades, we now know that marketing is not a science, it's an art. Yeah. And if there were to be something that could make it into a science, it would look different to the technology that we currently have. Google has I have such mixed feelings about Google. Uh, they've done a lot of great work in the realm of security. And they actually have come up with this thing called a privacy sandbox uh, with a, an area called topics. And they, they And I've talked about this on the show before, but it's this notion of a privacy preserving way to still gather information about its subjects and show them ads that they feel are relevant. And it really kind of, it kind of dumbs down stuff. It uses aggregation in a way that's kind of put you in these cohorts. Like, cause if you remember, it was, it was flock before it was topics, it was flock. And that was just crazy. Mm -hmm. Much to their credit, I think they've tried to come up with some way to meet in the middle, to find a compromise where, yes, you can, you can give us some information about you. We, we rule out that all the, the, the crazy topics you talk about, like health and religion and sexuality. But, you know, I like cars or I like sports or I like to buy computer stuff, you know, and find ways to dumb that down and, and still 
get this to advertisers so that you, when you do see ads, and that is the way, unfortunately, that that is still the business model of the internet today. You know, ads are what pay for these quote unquote free things that we, that, that we consume. They, they, they have tried to come up with this model that works. What do you, I don't know how much you've looked at that, but is there, given what you just said about being an art, not a, a science, but is there, is there not some compromise technical solution we can come up with here that satisfies both halves of this equation? One of the key Googlers who's leading that change, uh, David Temkin, used to be a colleague of mine when I worked for Brave Software. Hmm. And Brave had its own privacy-preserving advertising, or has its own privacy-preserving advertising model, too. Yes, I looked at it. I looked at it in detail, or at least as much detail as was possible. Google is astoundingly vague about the big stuff. Routinely. It's astoundingly vague about the big stuff. When the new law was coming in, people had to wait until the last two weeks. Publishers were then sent something by Google, which was vague, and it turns out disadvantaged them enormously. Mm. So even with the material available, there were a few papers and so on, it wasn't fully clear what Flock was. There's been a whole lot of discussion back and forth at the W3C, that standards body. Mm-hmm. And there have been various iterations of Google's approach. But ultimately, Google said it was going to do something, didn't do it, delayed doing whatever it was going to do. And it was never entirely clear what it was that Google was going to do. This is essentially a riddle wrapped in a mystery. There is no way to have a feeling one way or the other about what Google may or may not be proposing that it might possibly do until it's done it. Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who knows, right? It's a total mystery. Um, It may be that even Google doesn't know. So I have no thoughts one way or the other. Uh, I would say what's important is to be maximally skeptical uh, of of Google or anyone else. And uh, I would have no confidence whatever they come up with uh, will necessarily serve anyone's interests other than their own. And that includes the general population of people using the internet. Well, yeah, and that, and that is certainly one of the arguments I've heard against this is even if they could come up with this technologically sound privacy preserving method, it still kind of locks Google in at the center of the ad universe and, and makes them the one stop shop. You know, if cookies are going away, that this is all part of their supposedly getting away from third party cookies because we're all blocking them now anyway. But this would still solidify Google's position as the the, yeah. as the one place to go for all this information. Let's dig into that a little bit. Today, you have two different types of data free-for-all. Right now in online advertising, there are thousands of companies throwing data about us all to each other back and forth. And by the way, many of them are in China and Russia. And Google, among others, is throwing our data to those companies Mm -hmm. too. It's on their public list. So there's an external data free-for-all outside of the walled gardens, but key players there are Google and, and, and Meta too. So that's the ad auction business, the real-time bidding business. But then inside these big companies, they have their internal data free-for-alls. And we talked about this a few minutes ago, where they are taking data that they got for one reason, and they're using it in some other bit of their business to prop up you know, their, their business there too. Now, if, if, big if, if they are serious about shutting down their enabling role in the external data free-for-all, where they're not sharing our secrets with hundreds or thousands of other companies all over the world, bravo, great. And when those little companies who aren't as big as Google, for example, complain to competition or antitrust authorities that that's unfair, that is like a back alley surgeon waving his bloody saw in the air and complaining about those people over in that hospital with their electricity and their anesthetics and their sterile equipment. They even wash their hands and saying, that's not fair. Well, tough. Unfortunately, you must figure out a way to conduct a safe business without causing huge harms for the rest of the population. But when they say, why should Google be allowed to continue its internal data free-for-all. When they figure out the real problem, they may start saying that. They would be completely correct. 
Now, this cross use of data internally, that's a live issue. We're working on it right now. Mm. And in Europe, there's a new piece of law called the Digital Markets Act that engages with that. But the GDPR, the data protection law, also does. So uh, actually, we've relevant litigation mm. ongoing right now on that point. All of this sets up a kind of a false conflict between antitrust law and privacy or data protection law. Actually, if you were to take purpose limitation, which is this old idea in data protection law, at least in Europe, it's an an old American idea, and apply it, it would break up. It would functionally separate these big companies. And you would see the emergence of young, innovative, nascent competitors. And you would see the emergence of better systems that that make life better for everyone, except Mm. for Google, uh, where you have efficiency in the ad market. You have people no longer being thrown to the wolves. You no longer have situations where you might remember the case, a Catholic priest was outed. A guy mm-hmm. oh, yeah. living in Boston, and that was that seems to have been because the fact that he was using Grinder, the gay dating app, was leaked out to hundreds of companies by the ad tech firm Grinder was using. I think it was MoPub, which used to be owned by Twitter, and that data about him using Grinder then found its way into the public domain, and he ended up leaving the priesthood. Yeah, <laughs> but stuff like this. It, it's happening every day. Well, and, and that is something we haven't yet addressed. And, and that is, so far, we've been discussing the case of somebody collecting data, and we've assumed that that, that data will stay safe. And, mm-hmm. and that is, and as we've seen with all the data breaches, and this is, I think, uh, was at the basis, well, this and the fact that law enforcement, and in particular, intelligence agencies tend to have ways to access this data as well, that Max Schrems is basically saying, does any of this mm-hmm. have any meaning whatsoever when these intelligence agencies or other companies, or I would argue cyber criminals, can steal this data and release it anyway? I mean, if it's not safe, even with the people, even if the people who collect it did it properly and do it for the right reasons, it's still there waiting as a honeypot for somebody who wants that data. It's The fact that it exists at all is a problem. So two things. First, Max is also saying, I understand. I understand that security agencies of a nation need to be able to do certain things. But the individual concerned, they also need to be able to go to a real judge in a real court in that country and make sure it's all okay. So a big part of his case is not saying that European data should not travel to the United States. It's also not saying that the United States should not be able to protect itself. It's simply saying that he should be able to go to a judge mm. and ask the judge, is this okay mm. in each individual case? I think that's reasonable. I'm just reading to refresh my memory, a submission that we made to the FTC in November, I think. And in it, we talk about the national security risk from the online advertising system, not just Google, not just Meta, Amazon's in there, thousands of other companies too. Now, if you look at Google, Google says in its public documentation that 4,698 different firms receive data from its ad business about all of us. That's what Google says. Wow. Uh, Microsoft's equivalent says 1,647 firms. So we're talking about a lot of firms. Yeah, Plenty of those are outside of Europe and outside of the United States. I say this because you're in the States and I'm in Europe. Right. They're in places all over the world, including China and Russia, and including sanctioned companies. <laughs> mm. So this is even more remarkable. Now, What does that mean? The Tracking Industry Standards Body, the IAB, has a document, it's a public document, that sets the rules for um, how data brokers build profiles about us. It's, It's a standard that data brokers can use to have common tags that they might tag people with. Now, those tags include 
IAB code 885. For purchase intent, it means you're a buyer in the aerospace and defense sector. Hmm. <laughs> the same document also give codes for online gambling, debt, bankruptcy, and so on. Now, there is a reason why U.S. lawmakers have called the so-called bidstream of online advertising of RTB a goldmine for foreign intelligence services. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually not a goldmine. It's a gold gusher. <laughs> so this is a problem. Now, the Director of National Intelligence either has been or maybe, I, I'm not sure what the situation is, directed to consider whether U.S. intelligence personnel have been tracked by foreign adversaries using RTB. This is certainly something Congress was considering requesting. I don't know mm. if they have yet. And there's an interesting case. When the shoe is on your foot, it looks differently to yeah. when it's on the other person's foot. The U.S. Special Operations Command, this was publicly reported, purchased RTB data, so yeah. online advertising data about where we all are. A product called Locate X, but also it turned out that U.S. military special operators in Syria and Kuwait and at Fort Bragg and at Fort Fort Hood, their locations had been exposed by the same online advertising system. So, hmm. yes, this is very convenient <laughs> for military operators in the US to see where someone in another country is. Right. But at the same time, it's really convenient for your adversary to see where you are, even inside Fort Bragg. Yeah. I'll never forget the the classic story with the with the Fitbit or one of the other Strava was the company that tracked Strava. Strava. Yeah. That tracked people's the heat maps of where people do go like to go running. And turned out that yeah. there was a whole bunch of people running in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan that was the, Around the, an airstrip-shaped pattern. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Crazy. So there's a reason why uh, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency has asked all federal agencies to block ads to reduce what it calls the risk of data collection by third parties. So we, we don't need even to get into what this data crisis means, this privacy crisis means for you and me. It's it's already so clear what it means for national security. Right. It's it, it's unignorable. All right. Well, we you and I could go on for hours, I'm sure. Uh, but let let's wrap this up a little bit. What hopefully on a maybe on a positive note. What what does the future look like for data privacy? It really feels to me that we've maybe hit a tipping point. It you know has surveillance capitalism peaked? Have we are we finally understanding the problems with it? And has it become such a crisis now that things are going to start changing for the better? I don't know. I would love to say I'm entirely optimistic, but this has been a long fight. It will continue. In the United States, it is very positive to see the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, take a serious role and propose very soon, hopefully. Uh, it'll take, there's a long process, but we're talking years, not decades, and propose new rules across the union across the US for what cannot be done for commercial surveillance. It is kind of crazy that those rules don't currently exist. Yeah. Wild really. And yet hopefully there's a solution coming soon. However, the other side is working too. And earlier this week, the IAB uh, had its annual powwow, a big annual conference. And the CEO of the IAB made a, it's, I mean, reading the transcript, it looks unhinged, a speech calling lawmakers and others who were pushing for some correction to the crisis. He was calling these people extremists. I think hmm. he's he used the, the term extremists maybe 18 times in his speech. So the industry is feeling the pressure and it's kind of like old Detroit, you know, except that old Detroit did have a noble history and was part of the dynamo of your great nation. The online tracking industry does not have a great history and is mm. part of a dynamo of nothing. Um, but you might see it start to kick back as it enters what it now realizes is a crisis point.
It really is under pressure. The, the terrible pity is that it is not under pressure in Congress and at the Senate, hmm. nor is big tech. And we yeah. saw that with Klobuchar, Grassy Bill on antitrust, not receiving the, the, the support that it should have, particularly from the Republican side, which I think is very gravely disappointing. But the FTC and the new authority in California uh, using the Calif- uh, the CPRA and new mm-hmm. California law, I think we're going to see real progress there. In Europe, uh, we at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, we have litigation in multiple jurisdictions, um, Germany, Belgium, Ireland, Luxembourg, also in Northern California, actually, against a major data broker. And we're seeing progress. I think we are going to see that the tracking industry is forced, just like Detroit, is forced to start considering safe alternatives. It is essential for people's livelihoods in that industry that they start making that adjustment now. Now, what they're currently doing is they are taking the language of safety and and privacy and so on, and they are trying to guard their current practices Mm -hmm. in that language. Mm So, you know, this reminds me of Dieselgate. We've been here before mm. in many industries. That's not going to fly. We certainly will sue them. <laughs> Have no doubt we will yeah. sue them. Oh, we will sue them through. <laughs> uh, and conclusively, but but others will too. So it is time that they mature their understanding of where they are. Uh, it's the end game and they need to get serious. Well, Johnny, it's so great to have you guys on the case and out there keeping these guys honest and fighting the good fight. Thank you so much for coming back on the show and talking to us today. Thanks, Gary. Good to speak with you again. Thanks again to Johnny for coming back on the show. Always great to talk to him. He's really, again, on the front lines of the privacy war for all of us. He and his group at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. And it's always great to get his perspective on what's going on and get some of that behind the scenes stuff as well. Let me circle back to a few things he talked about. We talked about the Fair Information Practice Principles, or FIPS, which date back to the mid-1970s, believe it or not, here in the U.S. we It's easy to think that the U.S. is so behind the, the curve when it comes to privacy stuff, but we really did lead the way a long time ago. We just dropped the ball at some point. And Europe, the EU has picked it up. But it's really quite interesting to go back and look at that. It, and there's a link to the Wikipedia article. It's pretty short. It's worth a read. If nothing else, just to read the actual five principles. So you can find that link in the show notes. He also mentioned Gubu, which I had never heard before, but I looked it up for your benefit. And the, the full expansion of that acronym is grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre, and unprecedented. I'll have to remember that phrase. That, that could be a fun one to throw out. And then he also mentioned Dieselgate. Uh, that was the Volkswagen emissions scandal where the Volkswagen cars had programming built into them such that when they were on a test harness to do emissions standards, they would actually act differently to improve their emissions for the purpose of the test, but wouldn't do that when actually driving on the road. And if you want to read up some more on that, there is a link in the show notes for that as well. All right. Again, the book is out. Last I checked, it was still at a crazy low price on Amazon. That may not last for long. It may not even be the case by the time you hear this. I don't know. But at least it now is orderable. If you order it, it will come. Again, I've got an article about the book launch with some very specific ideas about how you can help me reach more people and get this book noticed. The next month or so, or maybe the next month or two, right around the book launch really is the prime time for this. I mean, you can do these things at any point, but the best time to do them, honestly, is in the next month or so. Again, you can find that just by going to my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, or go to fdsd.me slash fifth. So we'll have a news show for you next week, and then the interview after that will be kind of the flip side of this coin. I'll actually be talking to Susie Dawson. She's the founder of panquick.com, which you can go to right now if you want to check it out. But they are producing a new privacy-respecting alternative to our current social media like Twitter and Facebook. Honestly, it's what those things should have been all along before they lost their way and became advertising-based. This is something you're going to have to pay for, and that's on purpose. It will be part of the Fediverse like Mastodon, 
it really puts you back in control and that's the way <laughs> that's the way it should be that was a very very interesting discussion i'll be bringing you that interview in just two weeks so there you have it there's your show go check out the book tell your friends and family share it on social media it is a really big update it went from like 170 tips to over 200 tips it went from 400 pages to over 600 pages a lot of which are screenshots by the way so don't let that scare you but it is absolutely chock full with tons and tons of things simple things most of them free things that you can do to improve your privacy and security take care everybody stay safe out there and until next week as always don't get caught with your drawbridge down <laughs>